lecture is about development and involves several different topics related to the face, cranial vault, etc. So we're going to go through those. This was scheduled initially for uh, Ben Turner, who's indisposed because of an injury, and so I'm not Ben Turner. I guess you've already found, you've already met some people who also aren't Ben Turner. Doing, and uh, this is me. Uh, I'm Dr. Burns. We're gonna, as we do this, several parts of it are going to come back to the pharyngeal arches. And so it's useful to at least think a little bit about the, to, you know, reminder of the pharyngeal arches, which you must have done recently. Is that correct? Yeah, just now. Um, so we have these arches that have um, some things migrate into these arches. Neural crest and mesoderm from other sources migrate into these uh, arches and give rise to some tissues, the skeletal elements, you know, like the mandible, the cartilage that makes the mandible and so on. Um, some muscles of each of the, of, of the arches. Each of the arches has a muscle. There's a nerve that grows into each arch, so each arch has its own specific innervation and so on. You may not have heard anything about occipital myotomes. These are myoblasts migrating. Have you heard about occipital myotomes before? Yeah. Anyway, we will discuss that a little bit today with the development of the tongue muscles. Probably didn't talk about it with pharyngeal arches in general, but there are going to be some other muscle tissue besides mesoderm and besides... Uh, neural crest uh, that migrates in from occipital myotomes to help to form most of the muscles of the tongue and we'll talk about that towards the end of the hour so we have something else migrating into the pharyngeal arches as well that you may not have heard about before this is the the basics uh, praxial mesoderm and lateral mesoderm neural crest migrate in form the mesodermal core from the mesenchymal core of each arch that will give rise to a cartilage a group of muscles um, an artery, an, an, an aortic arch artery for each arch, and so on. Each arch is c covered by ectoderm, lined by endoderm, has a membrane and a cleft and a pouch, and we're not going to go through all that, but part of that has to come back today. A little bit of that has to come back today. And importantly, each a cranial nerve is associated with each of the arches. And so if we know which muscles are developed from the second arch, then we know their innervation because we know what the nerve of the second arch is, and so on. We'll come back and talk about that a little bit more too. Briefly, we're going to talk about the bones of the skull. Um, we're going to divide the skull into two components, the neurocranium, the part that surrounds the brain, the name sort of implies that, including this part, the calvarium, the part that's on top of and on the sides of, but also the floor, the, 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 the skull base. That's the neurocranium, the stuff that the brain sits on and the stuff that surrounds it. That's the neurocranium. And we have this other part we're going to refer to as the viscerocranium. That's the rest of the skull, the facial bones, for example, the maxilla and the zygomatic bone and the mandible and the auditory ossicles and so on and so forth. The remainder, the, the, not, the, the skull parts that aren't surrounding the brain. And each of these, there are several bones in each of these, uh, in both of these, and for both categories, some of the bones develop by endochondral ossification and some of the bones develop by intramembranous ossification and so confusingly to me actually we say there's a membranous neurocranium well those are the bones that surround the brain that 
developed by intermembranous ossification. And we talk about a, a cartilaginous neurocranium. That's, those are the parts of the bones that surround the brain that develop by endochondral ossification. That's all that means, nothing more and nothing less. Same is true of the visceral cranium, the rest of the skull, the, the uh, mandible and so on. Um, some of those bones developed by endochondral ossification, we'll call that the cartilaginous visceral cranium. And some of those bones of the face developed by you know, intramembranous ossification, we'll call that the membranous uh, visceral cranium. So confusing, slightly confusing terminology, but really stuff that's pretty familiar. It says ossification is in a particular sequence. Ossification everywhere is in a particular sequence. Limb ossification is in a particular sequence. We can you know, look at an x-ray of a child and age that child if development's normal age that child based on how far ossification is preceded even after birth and certainly before birth, femur length and so on. So ossification always occurs in a particular sequence. Um, and here's that terminology. Cartilaginous neurocranium is the stuff in tan. We're going to come back and look at that. This is like five weeks or six, early, five or six weeks, and then later, 12 weeks or something like that. Um, we'll come back and look at that. But that's the, the, the parts of the skull base that develop by endochondral ossification. That's why it's called cartilaginous neurocranium. And then in pink here, these plates that are going to make up uh, most of the calvarium, the frontal bones and the parietal bones, not all, but most of the calvarium, those are going to develop by intermembranous ossification. We're going to call that the membranous neurocranium. And similarly with the, with the face, and actually partly in the neck here with the laryngeal apparatus and so on, these things in, in uh, this reddish pink color. That's the, it says membranous visceral cranium. So those are bones of the face that develop by intramembranous ossification. And they look like first arch derivatives, don't they? Mandible, maxilla, zygomatic. These look like first arch derivatives. Plus, Auditory ossicles, or for example, auditory ossicles. These are in light blue. That says cartilaginous visceral cranium. That says bones that of the skull that develop by intra uh, by endochondral ossification. And some of those are also from the first. Two of those are also from the first arch. Huh? One of them from the third arch. We'll come back to that. But anyway, that's all that terminology means. Um, the cartilaginous neurocranium. Again, this is the the skull base, which I think you've just had a look at. This talks about these cartilages in a, in a lot of detail, but let's not freak about that. Let's take a look at this. This is the skull base development. Let's take a look at this. We just looked at this slide a bit earlier. Early on, so what are we doing here? We're take, basically taking the calvarium off of the embryo and then fetus, taking the calvarium off and removing the brain and looking down at the floor where the anterior, middle, and posterior cranial fossa are going to fossa are going to develop, and early on, whatever this is, six weeks or something like that, five or six, six weeks, maybe even a little bit later, but not much, um, doesn't look a thing like a skull base. If it wasn't labeled, you know, what would that be? You could make it be anything. Basically, it doesn't look at all like a skull base, but these small cartilages that are sitting somewhere under the brain, under the developing brain, under the frozen cephalon, under the neural tube. Um, doesn't look a thing like a skull base. Those, thi those cartilages, and they have names, but I'm not so worried about that. Um, they fuse and grow. This still doesn't look very much like a skull base, but this is later, a couple weeks later. 
They're fusing and growing in relationship to the developing oral cavity, in relationship to the notochord. You've heard of the notochord? Yeah. Um, and in relationship to the developing forebrain. And they're starting to get bigger, but by 12 weeks, this is you know sort of after the embryonic period, but by 12 weeks, these cartilages have grown, fused, and they actually start to look like a skull base. We can recognize things like foramen magnum and the base of the occipital bone around that and the petrous parts of the temporal bones in front of that and the sphenoid bones, greater and lesser wings of the sphenoid bone and body of the sphenoid bone. Once you study those skull-based bones, which are confusing in their own right, huh? This w you could look at this and say, that sort of looks like a skull base. It's recognizable as a skull base. And these cartilaginous models are going to ossify by endochondral ossification to form those bones of the skull base, the cartilaginous neurocranium. These plates of bone, um, frontal parietal, they're also going to grow and get closer together, but even by birth, those plates of bone in the skull, they're not fused together, are they? They're still joined by uh, connective tissue membranes, but even at birth, those skull plates move around as the fetal, as the baby's head goes through the birth canal, gets squeezed, and so on and so forth, and they, it's called molding. The head changes shape to fit through the birth canal. And then that, um, those bones, even for a, a while after following birth, in normal skull development, there's a, a fontanelle. There's a, the, what layman people call the, the soft spot. There's that big gap between skull bones, and there are actually six fontanelles. But, so these bones are going to form the calvarium, the brain case. But it's not complete at birth, and point of fact, it's not complete for some time um, after birth. But those develop by intermembranous ossification. And that's what it says there. Um, the parts of the skull that don't develop, uh, that don't surround the brain, um, some of this, if it's not familiar, will be shortly. For example, uh, endochondral ossification for the, for the uh, auditory ossicles, Malleus incus and stapes. Two of those, Malleus and incus, are derived from the first arch cartilage. So they're first arch derivatives. Um, the stapes, the last uh, in that ossicular chain, develops it's from the, the second arch cartilage and the thing called the styloid process, which is in the notoriosco, but this thing called the styloid process, also from the second arch. And all of those develop by endochondral ossification. So that we want to name those, technically we'd say those are the cartilaginous visceral cranium. The rest of the face, the stuff that we saw in pink here, or red, or whatever color that is. Um, I guess that's pink. Huh? This is red. These are bones of the face that develop by intramembranous ossification, and like the mandible, what arch does that come from? It's first arch. It's from the first arch cartilage, the the maxilla. That's a first arch cartilage. The, the cheekbone, the zygoma, that's a first arch. The squamous temporal bone, you haven't heard most of this probably. The squamous temporal bone, first arch. So these are, and you can see, 
Remember, the first arch has two prominences. It has a maxillary prominence and a mandibular prominence. Is that ringing any bells? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so we're going to talk more about that when we talk about uh, face development. But it's, you can sort of see it here, the, the mandibular prominence and the maxillary prominence and bones that develop from that. And it so happens that they develop by intermembranous ossification, so they, they call them this. And then there are some other bones in the neck. The hyoid bone has a story. I won't go through it because it's not our job today. But the hyoid bone develops from second and third arch cartilages, some combination of, and the, and the laryngeal cartilages develop from fourth and sixth arch cartilages. But it's not our job today. Um, wind up with something that looks like this, a definitive uh, you know, adult skull, but also covered by muscles that are also derivatives that they them, that themselves are derived from an arch. For example, these muscles of facial expression, where did they come from? Like orbicularis oris and orbicularis oculi. And second arch, those are second arch derivatives. We'll come back to that. But, and these muscles of mastication, master is missing here, a little piece of it, but these muscles of mastication, the ones that move the mandible around, where do they come from? Which arch? First arch. Yeah. Exactly. So... <coughs> Early on, fourth week of intrauterine life, um, talking about development of the face, not really terribly recognizable of the face. It's the head end of the embryo, and there's an opening. We're calling the stomadium, or it's the primordial mouth, so to speak, that marks the position of where the mouth is going to be, that opens into the foregut, opens into the pharynx, into the foregut, which will become the pharynx and esophagus and so on. Um, and what are the, so it sort of has face-like characteristics, at least it has a prominence in the front and it has sides and it has an opening. That's about all you could say about it that's face-like so far. But anyway, it's going to lead to a face. We, we're going to talk about these parts, the frontal nasal prominence here in green and the first arch in blue and amber or whatever that is, blue and gold. Um, the mandibular prominence of the first arch and the maxillary prominence of the first arch, and that's on two sides. So we have five things, the frontal nasal prominence, right and left maxillary prominences of the first arch and right and left mandibular prominences um, of the first arch. And actually we have, as head folding occurs, we have the heart prominence that forms part of the floor of the, that helps form the floor of the foregut as well. Um, but we're going to focus on these five things as we talk about face development. So here they are. These are, again, this development is being organized by the, the neural tube, by the developing neural tube, the brain in, the prosencephalon, rhombencephalon, organizing centers. Um, so brain development is driving this facial development. Frontal nasal prominence in green, maxillary prominences of the first arch and mandibular prominences of the first arch, second arch, and so on. Stomadium. Early on, fifth week or something like that, fourth, end of fourth week, beginning of fifth week, these areas start to thicken. Ectodermal proliferation, so you get these thickened coin-shaped areas that we're going to call nasal placodes. Olfactory or nasal placodes, and here they are. And that's going to mark the spot where the nostril is going to develop. It's also important for development of part of the palate and upper lip and so on, but recognizable as the place where nostrils are going to develop. 
pretty early on. So this thickening occurs, this coin-shaped thickening occurs, and then it invaginates in the center. The pit forms in the center, the nasal pit. And once there's a pit in the center, so here we go, there's a nasal pit in the center, that means that that original coin-shaped thing now has a medial prominence, a medial nasal prominence on the medial side of the pit, and a lateral nasal prominence on the lateral side of the pit. And the lateral prominence is next to, in contact with, the maxillary prominence of the first arch, separated by a groove. Particularly care right now what the name of the groove is, it's called the nasolacrimal groove. Though. And then the mandibular prominence of the first arch have fused in the midline, and we have above the mouth, the stomodium, frontal nasal prominence on the sides of it, maxillary prominences of the first arch, and below it, mandibular prominences of the first arch. That's kind of how it is, huh? Mandibular parts of the first arch below the mouth, and maxillary parts above, and frontal nasal, whatever that is, in between in the center. Um, and the first pharyngeal cleft, first, what's the first pharyngeal cleft? I mean, it's going back. Huh? That's between the first arch and the second arch, and it's going to form what? Marks the position of what? External acoustic meatus, and so the ear is going to wind up developing here. Or at least this is where the opening of the external ear is going to develop. The eye develops from the brain. You'll have, you'll have separate, if you haven't already, have a separate lecture on eye development. But there's an ectodermal part, the lens placode, forming part of the eye, the lens and so on, parts of the eye, some parts of the eye, that marks the position of the eye here as well. So we sort of have a position of the eye, position of the opening of the ear, position of the mouth, position of nostrils and so on. It's starting to come together as a face. That still needs some work, huh? And the scanning electron micrograph. So here we have frontal nasal prominence with, what is this? Medial nasal prominence, what's that? Nasal pit. Lateral nasal prominence, what's this thing? Lens placode, what's this? Maxillary prominence of the first starts, somebody's telling me. And this is? the fused mandibular prominences of the right and left first arch. What's going to happen, or at least part of what's going to happen, um, is the maxillary prominences are going to grow. And as they grow, they're going to push the, here we have right and left, you know, here's the medial nasal prominence and the lateral nasal prominence and then as the maxillary prominences grow, they're going to push the medial nasal prominences together in the midline. They're going to fuse in the midline. They're going to be pushed together, and then the medial nasal prominences of both sides are going to fuse. That's what it looks like, isn't it? Medial fused, lateral. And so here, that's happening. Maxillary arrows indicate growth of the maxillary prominences, pushing those medial nasal prominences together, together more, squish together a little bit more. As they fuse, we're going to change their name. The fused medial nasal prominences, we're going to change their name. Why? I have no idea. But anyway, we are. To intermaxillary segment. We call that the intermaxillary segment. It's labeled here. And that intermaxillary segment 
is going to grow. We're going to talk about palate in a little bit, but that intermaxillary segment is going to grow and form the inside the, the, of the lip, everything except the surface, the inside of the lip, the part of the maxillary alveolus that carries the incisor teeth, and a little bit of the palate behind the incisor teeth, not very much. A little bit of the hard palate behind the incisor teeth. That we're going to call that. We're going to call it later on. We're going to call it the primary palate. Evidently, there's going to be a primary and a secondary palate. But anyway, this intermaxillary cerex is going to form that stuff: interior of lip, maxillary alveolus for the incisor teeth, and a small part of the hard palate behind the incisor teeth. That's what the end. The septum is also going to grow. When we talk about it, the septum is also going to grow down from the intermaxillary segment. So that's what we just basically said. Maxillary prominence is growing, bringing the medial prominences together, bringing the lens placodes and developing eyes closer to where we expect them to be above the maxilla, zygomatic stuff, and so on. And the external acoustic meatus, still not exactly where we want it to be, but getting closer. And this just sort of tells us how do the nose, oh, the, lastly, so those medial nasal prominences come together and fuse, form the interior of the lip. The maxillary prominences overgrow in the center, just the surface, though. So this little depression called the philtrum, that's the line of fusion between the intermaxillary, between the maxillary prominences, right and left maxillary prominences. Story that really was probably told, but we'll, it's worth, it bears some repeating. These uh, this rust color, whatever, muscle color. I didn't say that. Rust color um, represents second arch muscles, the muscles of facial expression, and a couple of others, but mostly, you know, prominently, muscles of facial expression. And so what's the nerve of the second arch? Facial nerve. And so muscles of facial expression are innervated by the facial nerve. The muscles come from the second arch, innervated by the nerve of the second arch, the facial nerve. Muscles of mastication like temporalis and masseter and the pterygoids and so on, Milo, anterior belly or mylohyoid and anterior belly digastric, there's a whole list, but a group of muscles that move the mandible around, muscles of mastication. Um, those develop from the first arch, it says here in this orange E color. So what's the nerve of the first arch? So the trigeminal and specifically what part of the trigeminal has motor fibers? B3, somebody tell me. And so on. And that's what this story is basically telling us here as well. Um, trigeminal, facial, glossopharyngeal, and vagus for the first arch, second arch, third arch, and fourth and sixth arches. Ad in addition to that, just as a reminder, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, so th and that's good stuff. That's very helpful in remembering innervation patterns in the head. Very helpful to remember innervation patterns um, in the head. In addition to that, though, we're momentarily we're not quite next but momentarily we're going to talk about development of the tongue and the tongue muscles are going to come from these occipital myotomes from from somites that are cranial to above the cervical somites and so the muscles and but they're going to migrate where is the tongue though it's in the oral cavity it's in the floor of the pharynx so these occipital myotomes are going to migrate into the floor of the arches into the floor of the pharynx around the arches and so the tongue muscles are going to be wound up by being innervated by the 12th cranial nerve, 
not by one of the arch cranial nerves because those occipital myotomes would migrate in and leave a trail of uh, homeobox gene products to attract 12th cranial nerve, not one of the others. So another, a reason to think about that, to remember that there are occipital myotomes that migrate in, at least for formation of the tongue. Maybe some other things as well, but at least for formation of the tongue muscles. We'll get to that. So the nasal cavity itself um, develops, you know, the nasal pit invaginates more, nasal sac. But it's still separated, completely separated from the oral cavity by this thing that's called an oral nasal membrane. That's not normal. I mean, that's not, that's not how it works in uh, definitively. My nasal, yours and our nasal cavities are connected to the oral cavity through the pharynx. They're not completely separated. So that oral nasal membrane, I mean, the, the sac gets bigger. We call this a nasal cavity here. The oral nasal membrane needs to degenerate to have normal development. Here it's gone. This is like seven weeks or so. By seven weeks or so, it's gone. Well, this is sort of like the story of the three bears. This is not enough connection between the nasal cavity and oral cavity. This is too much connection between the nasal cavity and the oral cavity. The only separation is this thing called the primary palate, the intermaxillary segment we were talking about on face development. There's, we're missing a whole bunch of palate. Later on, there's going to be more palate development to get us to the normal amount, the mama bear amount of separation between the nasal cavity and the oral cavity. Um, I'm not going to say much about paranasal sinuses. We can see them in skull films, huh? We see them in CT scan, any X-ray modality, and we can see them in for that matter, but easy to see in x-ray modalities, the, they're the, the dark things, the things that are lucent to x-rays, like frontal sinuses and ethmoidal sinuses, air cells and maxillary sinuses and so on. They're pretty big by our 20s, 30s, 40s, and so on. They're pretty big. One of these bones, are big, they're big openings. At birth, they're not present. They're hardly present at all, I think is the story we need to learn here. This is the nasal cavity, this whitish area. There are some channels some diverticula that lead towards like the region where the frontal sinus is going to develop and there's a channel that leads there towards the region where the maxillary sinus is going to develop diverticula but the sinuses themselves have not developed yet the sinuses themselves develop over years and decades um, there's a thing over here at just before puberty and during puberty there's kind of a burst of lots of growth but including growth of the sinuses but they continue to grow throughout life and that's really all we want to get from this is at birth, the sinuses are not present or hardly present, but development occurs over years and decades. So looking at development of the tongue, this is cutting the, you know, the embryo, cutting the back of the pharynx off and looking down into the floor of the pharynx. This would be, and this is the first arch, second arch, third arch, fourth arch, fourth and sixth, but anyway, if we call it fourth, fourth is the one we're going to talk about. Um, so this is looking at the floor, anteriorly, of the foregut. Anteriorly, there's going to be a stomadium that leads into what's sort of the primitive oral cavity, and what do we expect to find in an oral cavity? Be, prominently a tongue, among other things. And... Uh, so it stands to reason that the tongue develops from proliferation of cells in the floor of the pharynx. And that's where it is. Um, 
in blue, we have the first arch, gold, the second arch, third arch in orange or whatever color that is in brown. Uh, for the fourth arch here, the second arch isn't going to give rise to any part of the tongue. So there's going to have to be some overgrowth. The first arch is going to give rise to a lot of the tongue, to two-thirds of the tongue. From these, they're labeled distal tongue buds here, but we call them now later, uh, um, lateral lingual swellings. I bet your textbook calls them lateral lingual swellings. There's lateral swellings over here. Um, there's also a median lingual swelling associated with the first arch here in blue, but it doesn't do anything either. The lateral ones grow and grow and grow, and they overgrow the median ones. So the lateral ones are ones that are important for the development of the first arch part of the tongue. There is a median one, but it gets overgrown. There is a group of proliferation, uh, there's an area of self-proliferation in the second arch called the copula, but it also gets overgrown, doesn't contribute to any structure of the tongue. There's also this thing called the frame and cecum. You know what the frame, have you heard about thyroid development yet? So the frame and cecum marks the position of the thyroglossal, the descent of the thyroglossal duct and so on. Um, then there's this thing called the hypopharyngeal eminence, which is in the floor of the third, the floor of the pharynx at the third arch mostly and fourth arch to a lesser but still significant extent, so third and fourth arch. These things are going to overgrow the copula. This, this hypopharyngeal eminence, the third and fourth arch, are going to overgrow the copula so that the tongue winds up being developed from first arch, mostly, well, entirely, the lateral swellings and third and fourth arch hypopharyngeal eminence from the third arch and fourth arch. And so that's going to overgrow the copula. So here it is, schematically. That's what we just looked at, that's the picture we just looked at, the drawing. Here's this overgrowth. This is second arch in gold here. The central parts are overgrowing the central parts of the third and fourth arches, the hypopharyngeal limits are overgrowing the central part of the second arch, coming in contact with the tongue parts of the first arch. So instead of going first, second, third, fourth, it goes first arch, third arch, fourth arch in the floor here. And in the definitive tongue, in blue, first arch parts, the lateral swellings. You can see where they met in the midline. There's still a RFA if you look at a tongue. Those are the form from the lateral lingual swellings of the first arch. That's the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, the oral part of the tongue, the part that sits and looks up at the palate. This orange and brown part, that's the posterior part of the, the posterior third of the tongue, the pharyngeal part of the tongue. That's developed from third and fourth, most of it from the third, but a little bit from the fourth arch and the epiglottis is also from the fourth arch, part of this hypopharyngeal eminence. Why go to all that? The muscles are said, the muscles come from someplace else. Muscles come from occipital myoblasts that migrate in and bring another nerve in, the 12th nerve that's not associated with one of the arches. So the 12th nerve, the hypoglossal nerve, um, innervates the tongue muscles. But how about sensory innervation of the tongue? Anterior two-thirds are from the first arch, so what's the sensory innervation? going to be the lingual branch of V3. It's going to be trigeminal, the nerve of the first arch. The most of the posterior third of the tongue is innerva sensory innervation from what? 
Vasopharyngeal, a little bit though, the tongue base and the, and the epiglottis are from what? Fourth arch vagus nerve. So if we know the nerves of the arches and we know how the arches contribute to any structure, including the tongue, then we could predict the sensory innervation. What does the seven have any, does the seventh cranial nerve have anything to do with the tongue? Yeah, so through one of its branches, it does what for the tongue? Taste, special sense of taste from the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, except for that row of valate papillae, which the valate papillae and the taste buds of the posterior third of the tongue, where do they, where do they come, where do they, what innervates those? Glossopharyngeal. This line, what's this line? It's called the, the, uh, the uh, terminal sulcus. That's the line, if you can see it on a tongue, uh, that's the line of fusion between the first arch and the hypopharyngeal eminence of the third arch and the foramen cecum is at the tip of that V, if that V-shaped groove. The frenial of the tongue can be too short at birth, ankyloglossia. Um, for most children with ankyloglossia, this, it grows, stretches, whatever, and nothing is required. However, if it's really short, um, it interferes with feeding. This infant, uh, the infant needs to get his or her tongue around the nipple uh, to, to suckle, to feed. And so it can interfere with feeding. If it does persist, uh, then it can interfere with speech sounds, lingual speech sounds as well later on in life. But ordinarily, no intervention is required, although it's a worrisome in the, from the standpoint of feeding early on. The palate. So we're going to have two parts of the palate. Uh, the primary palate and the secondary palate. The primary palate is the part from the intermaxillary segment that we've already sort of talked about, those fused medial nasal prominences. That's not much of the hard palate. It's just a little bit of the hard palate. Um, the secondary palate is the remainder, the rest of the hard palate and all of the soft palate. So most of the palate develops from the secondary palate, which is described here. We're going to look at it in uh, drawings. So early on, five, six weeks, something like that, um, the tongue is really big in comparison to the oral cavity. The mandible hasn't grown. The tongue grows a lot. The mandible hasn't grown so much yet, so the oral cavity is not big enough to accommodate the tongue. The tongue is sitting in the oral cavity, but also up in the nasal cavity until mandibular growth occurs, which is hopefully going to happen very shortly. But until mandibular growth occurs, the tongue can't fit in the oral cavity. It's just not enough room, not enough space uh, in the oral cavity. So the tongue is shown here, sort of sitting up in the oral cavity, in the sagittal and this uh, coronal view. Here's the, this, this blob, and these, here's, the, here's the lip, central part of the lip. Here's the alveolus that carries the incisor teeth, and here's the palate, hard palate just behind that, or what's going to become the hard palate just behind that. That's the intermaxillary segment. That's the stuff, that's stuff that develops from the intermaxillary segment. That's the pr this is the primary palate. It's labeled here median palatine process. That's the primary palate. In fact, here it's labeled... Hopefully primary palate. No, it's not. But anyway, that's, that's what we're going to call the primary palate. The part of the palate that develops from the intermaxillary segment. The remainder of the palate, which is most of it, 
is going to develop from these ridges that are coming from the inside of the maxillary prominences, from the oral cavity side of the maxillary prominences that are growing towards each other in the midline, just barely growing here, just barely a blip here, but closer, almost a meeting in the midline here. So these, these are the lateral palatine processes. They're going from the inside of the maxilla. Initially, they're kind of floppy, so they look like they're growing like that. But they're, what, eventually, they're going to grow together in the midline like that. Palatal shells or lateral palatine processes are going to grow together in the midline and form all of the rest of the hard palate and all of the soft palate. That's the plan. At the same time, there's a downgrowth from the inside of the intermaxillary segment down and back from inside of the intermaxillary segment. The septum grows down, coming down like a curtain. Initially, though, none of these things, of course, are fused. And initially, the, the tongue is in the way. The palatal shelves, the lateral palatine processes are growing. They're going to hydrate and stiffen up. They're, they're kind of floppy initially, but they hydrate and stiffen up. Um, they're going to grow together, but initially the tongue is in the way. And it's shown there in that illustration. Ordinarily, mandibular growth allows the tongue to leave the nasal cavity and allows the lateral palatine processes to grow together. What happens, though, in first arch syndrome, for example, you've heard, which you've heard about, presumably, where the mandible fails to grow? If the mandible fails to grow, what, what does the tongue do? It can't leave the nasal cavity. If the tongue can't leave the nasal cavity, what happens to perfectly normal lateral palatine processes? They can't grow together. They're mechanically obstructed from growing together. So what do you wind up with? A, a, one version of cleft palate. We're going to talk about cleft palate momentarily here. So lateral palatine processes growing together to form um, the... Uh, Secondary palate, here they are closer together, fusing, more fusion. Um, septum growing down, septum growing down. What normally happens, the palatine processes, lateral palatine processes grow together. The septum grows down and fuses. So normally what we wind up with is an oral cavity that's separated except posteriorly from the nasal cavity and two sides of the nasal cavity separated by nasal septum. And the... Uvula, that's the last bit of the, of course, of the soft palate that's also has to fuse. It's just sort of zipping up here. When we talk about clefts, almost anything can go wrong in this process. And does in some children. Um, when we talk about these clefts, there's a, it's, there's a dizzying array of possibilities actually but we're going to basically talk about cleft lip with or without cleft palate so we could have cleft lip without cleft palate and in that cleft lip we're going to have um, a defect in the floor of the nasal of the nostril on that side of the nasal opening on that side that could then involve the part of the, al the maxillary alveolus that carries the incisor teeth so we could have a that would be part of the cleft of the primary palate, and a little bit behind that, the incisor teeth. That'd be cleft anterior palate. Is the terminology what it says here? The anterior palate, in other words, is cleft of the intermaxillary segment on one side or both sides, not the secondary palate, which are the palatine shelves. So anterior palate can include cleft lip with or without cleft of the intermaxillary segment parts that the primary palate. 
the anterior cleft palate. So we have cleft lip with anterior uh, cleft palate or without. Posterior cleft palate refers to some amount of failure of fusion of the lateral palatine processes. So most of the hard palate and soft palate, if it was just cleft uvula, that's still posterior cleft palate. It's just a very, very mild version of posterior cleft palate. Or if it's complete, that all the way to the, all the way to the incisor foramen that separates the secondary palate from the primary palate, all the way to very near the incisor teeth, but not quite to the incisor teeth, that that could also be posterior cleft palate. So clefts of failure of one or both lateral processes to join in the, to get to the midline to some extent. Or rather, this is good for schematic purposes. We're going to look at a couple of pictures and think about this a little bit more. But um, So here, um, normal development, the normal developmental sequence, what would you call this? So this is a lip. This is the alveolus that carries the incisor teeth, hard palate and soft palate, and in a highly schematic view. But what would we call this? Cleft lip without cleft palate, huh? So the, there's a defect in the floor of the nasal nostril, the nasal opening there, and a defect in the lip. But it's not including anything posterior to that. It's not going into the primary palate. Or it could include the alveolus, part of the maxillary alveolus that carries the incisor teeth and the primary palate. So that'd be cleft lip with anterior, with complete anterior cleft palate. See how this terminology works, roughly speaking, so far? That's actually, this is called unilateral cleft lip with anterior cleft palate. Well, if this is unilateral cleft lip with anterior cleft palate, what is this? Bilateral cleft lip with anterior cleft palate. What is this thing, you know, the, the, this thing that's floating now in the center, not connected to anything on either side? Developmentally speaking, what is that? What part was that that was supposed to? Intermaxillary segment. So neither, um, in, in this case, where it's, it's, I think it's easier to see when it's bilateral. Um, neither maxillary prominence has fused with the intermaxillary segment. We basically have intermaxillary segment components floating free in the center in bilateral cleft lip with anterior cleft palate. Is that sensible? More or less? Okay. I'll take that as a yes. Um, we could also have posterior cleft palate, and I wish they included some of the hard palate in this diagram, because it does, can and does. Posterior cleft palate is failure of one or both sides of the um, lateral palatine shelves to reach the midline. And so it could be just the uvula, as I said a little bit earlier, or it could be the uvula and all the soft palate and all of the secondary palate, all the way up to the incisive foramen, a short distance behind the incisor teeth, but not including, doesn't have to, if we're going to call it this kind of defects, not including the anterior intermaxillary segment part. And this would be one side, and this would be both sides. Or there could be unilateral cleft lip 
with anterior and posterior cleft palate, complete anterior and posterior cleft palate. Or there could be bilateral cleft lip with complete anterior and posterior cleft palate. Let's look at that in some couple of infants and see if we can make sense of it. Um, so this is a little boy, the, the legend tells us, um, who has unilateral cleft lip and anterior and posterior cleft palate. So he has a, he would correspond, and this is a mirror drawing, a mirror photo that's so confusing. We're going to look at this little girl momentarily to make a little bit more sense, but it's so confusing. Let's look at the schematic of this. What schematic? So cleft, unilateral cleft lip, and, and complete anterior and posterior cleft palate. That's what this little boy has. Oops. Which of these does that correspond to? If this was a clicker question. That's, somebody said, D. This is unilateral cleft lip, anterior and posterior cleft palate. So what failed to fuse the maxillary segment excuse me, the maxillary prominence failed to fuse with the intermaxillary segment on one side and a palatine shelf, a lateral palatine process, failed to reach the midline on the same side in that same child. So anterior cleft lip and anterior cleft palate from failure of the maxillary prominence to fuse with the intermaxillary segment on one side and secondary cleft palate, posterior cleft palate, because of failure of one palatine process to reach the midline on one side. So two things had to go wrong to get that. This little girl, the photo is much more understandable. This is a little girl with bilateral cleft lip and complete anterior and posterior cleft palate. Bilateral cleft lip and complete bilateral anterior and posterior cleft palate. So which of these corresponds to the little girl? H. So what, is, what should we, if we were going to try to make sense of the photograph, which we're going to try to do in the last you know, three minutes or whatever we have here, four minutes, um, what should we, we should look for something that corresponds, roughly speaking, to a maxillary, the intermaxillary segment the parts that develop from a free-floating intermaxillary segment with defects in the nostril and in the, in the floor of the nasal opening with a lateral sides, but a defect between that and the, and the center. And then if we looked at her palate, we should see a gap where both pal lateral palatine processes failed to get there. What should we see in the center of that? We should see the septum, which grew down but didn't have any secondary palate to fuse to. So let's go to the photograph and see if we can uh, pick out those various uh, parts. So, I mean, basically here, this, just in this photograph of her face, we can see sort of a, an intermaxillary segment, fused medial nasal processes. But where is it here in this? Uh, it's kind of here, huh? This is that, this is lip, and this is the, the uh, alveolus that would carry, that will eventually carry teeth incisor teeth and then a little bit this little bit of palate hard palate behind those side of those future 
um, incisor teeth. Um, here's the edge of one side of the secondary palate. Here's the edge of the other side of the secondary palate. They haven't reached the midline. Neither has reached the midline. And what's this thing growing down and back from the intermaxillary segment? That's the inferior edge. What we're seeing is the inferior edge of the septum. It grew down, but nothing to fuse with. So we're looking at the inferior edge of the septum growing down from the intermaxillary segment, the edge of the lateral palatine shelf that palatine process that didn't get to the midline, and the other edge of the other side, the lateral palatine process that didn't get to the midline, and no fusion here between the maxillary prominence and the intermaxillary segment. No fusion here between the maxillary prominence and the intermaxillary segment. Does that make a little bit more? To me, it does. I'll speak for myself. I won't ask you. <laughs> For me, that helps looking at these children, especially when they have the whole spectrum, makes it a little bit easier to picture what happened there during development. Helps me more, I think, than looking at even those uh, um, illustrations. What kind of troubles do the kids have who have part of this, you know, cleft uvula, nothing, <laughs> okay? But any, any, any amount of cleft lip, what kind of problem does that lead to? Feeding, so orbicularis oris. Kind of, if you want to describe orbicularis oris as a, it's a circle of muscle, what is a circle of muscle? It's a sphincter, so it's the sphincter of the mouth, huh? And what do you have to do to feed when you're an infant? You have to produce, you have to isolate the pressure inside your mouth from atmospheric pressure. You need to make it lower <laughs> inside your mouth to suckle. And if you can't seal your lips because there's a defect in orbicularis oris, including other parts of the lips, there's a defect you can't. Sphincters that have a hole in them don't work. Sphincters that have a gap. Sphincter don't work. If you can't form a labial seal, you can't reduce intraoral pressure below atmospheric, and therefore you can't suckle. So interference with feeding um, is the main problem, is the main you know, uh, medical problem. Um, dental development is another problem because some of these involve the alveolus part that carries teeth. Um, and to some extent also interfere unfixed with um, palatal elements of speech and lingual elements of speech and so on. So they can interfere with speech as well. But the feeding part is the main problem. I think we just uh, ran out of time. Thanks for, thanks for playing. <laughs>